0: Well, what would you expect a church to be known for in general? Maybe more specifically for us, what do you want our church to be known for? What, what do you want us to be known for as the, as the foundation or how we function as a body of believers, an organization gathering together? To... And how about this? What, what does the Bible say we'll be doing forever and ever in the presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth. If a church is going to promote itself and encouraging you to come, or maybe even analyzing its own strengths and weaknesses as a body of believers, what would they say? You know, I think a lot of people might say they want to be known for their, for their Bible studies or their classes. And certainly, Bible studies of all kinds are a key component of a church maturing. Small groups gathering provides opportunities for member to stud, members to study the Bible. Uh, in-depth or to ask questions or to discover the faith that they hold to, on and on. I had lunch recently with another pastor in town um, who said that his church service, he actually intentionally tries to aim to teach more lightly in the Sunday mornings in order to elevate what he thinks is the real centerpiece of, of their church, which would be small groups. Uh, so people, they want to dive deeper, they go to a community group, but primarily the, the church's program there would be Bible study. Some may say evangelism. Some Christian churches place such a strong emphasis on sharing the gospel with others, and this can take place in many forms, maybe outreach programs that a church holds onto or putting people on mission trips or even promoting personal evangelism within their daily lives. Some, some churches may even situate or arrange their liturgy to have a focus on those who don't know Christ. Now, possibly, whenever the church gathers, it might aim itself to look externally so that people feel welcome from afar to come in to where they can be a part of it. Some churches may focus their primary task on community service, uh, where some churches primarily seek to engage a community or a people group through service projects to help those in need and demonstrate God's love to the world. Other churches might even arrange themselves and emphasize the primary focus of their gathering would be for fellowship, where fellowship is a gift, and it's an important part of the church's life. And this might include regular gatherings for meals, social events, and other activities to allow members to foster relationships or grow in those relationships. And I just want to say all those things are good. I'm not knocking on fellowship or evangelism or studying the Bible. We're commanded to do those things, but I don't think that's the primary program of the church. I think the primary program— or activity, or event, the foundation for who a church is, what a church was, or what a church is, is worship. Where in the Christian faith, the biblical pattern, a church is very different than the world, and it's made different in Christ, so it should operate uniquely from a business, or a school, or even a club, based on their worship. So I remember hearing a sermon maybe 10 or 12 years ago by a guy in Dallas-Fort Worth area saying that Dallas is actually home to the most expensive worship center in the world where about 80,000 people come on Sundays to worship. They spend their entire week thinking about it, planning about it. They go early. They hang out with people, even on the back of trucks. They spend a ton of money. They wear certain clothes. They lift up their hands to the heavens, and they say, "'Go Cowboys!' in a $2 billion AT&T stadium, whereas a Christian's primary focus is their worship of God. All day, every day, who Christians are called to focus on, who Christians are called to work for, who Christians are called to worship is God. So a Christian church, in relation to that, a Christian church, the primary task, the foundational action, the building blocks on which their notoriety or purpose can be known is what? worship. Where Christians come together and exalt, praise and focus on God. Now, we as elders and I know you as members think that it's clear in scripture that Christians are unique in our comp- composition, composition as a body of believers by our worship. What makes us different than the world around us? Our our worship. Actively we gather to sing to God, we pray to God, We hear from God's Word, we receive God's Word, and we participate in the ordinances that God has given us. Now, our sermon's text today has the Apostle Paul continuing an argument to his brother in the faith, Timothy, to continue to fight for, to build up, and to instruct this particular church which was in trouble because God is worthy to be worshiped. That's why he's fighting for that church, that's why he's aiming to build up that church. That's why he's instructing Timothy to go to that church, to instruct that church, because their worship is being sidelined for disputes within them. Timothy's church is in trouble. It's, in many ways, it, the verses there will say that it's being led to swerve away from the faith and is giving off a bad witness to the world by the activities of Christians inside the church. And in order to bring them back to the ground of peace and order... Paul, within his teaching, kind of takes an abrupt stop here and busts out in praise for all that God has done for him in Christ. So for us, in struggling for good things, in many ways stiff arming wrong things, all of this will be done well if we're being fueled by and centered around the beautiful things that God has given to us in Christ, which is actually the crux of, of this text altogether. In the midst of In the midst of Paul telling Timothy to watch out for this, speak up for this, and then later he'll say, correct and reorganize and readminister yourself under the gospel of Christ, he almost takes a, a stop to sing a praise to the Lord for all that God has done. And that will be actually the foundation for which you correct false teachers from. That will be the foundation for which you reorganize yourself in. That will be actually the fuel of which you can build a church in a healthy relationship in order to worship the King. A lot of us, me included, are tempted to whenever we find something that's going awry, we want to put a patch on it or build worldly advice within it. And what Paul says over and over again in the book of First Timothy is, if the church is in trouble in any category, take yourself back to the gospel and let the gospel clarify or even soften all of the wrinkles that exist. And so Paul gives us clear words in this text on what we should worship God for for His grace, for His gospel, for His mercy. So, people worship God with various affections and passions, but Paul gives our church today clarity on what we should be worshiping God for, and that will serve as the outline for uh, our time in the Word together, is that he first tells Timothy in, in many ways that we should worship God, firstly, in verses 12 through 14, for God's grace. Why do you worship God? Because of God's grace. Paul had spent his life making so much of what God had done to him and asked for him. He never tired of making much of the grace of God. Look at verse 12 and what it says there in 1 Timothy chapter one. It says, I am grateful to Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he has regarded me as faithful, putting me into service. He thanks God, Christ Jesus our Lord, where this is a flag or a banner that waves over this entire passage An expression directed explicitly to Jesus, gathering the focus of all of our hearts, all of our affections in worship, not to ourselves or to the surrounding world, but to Christ. A declaration of a man who's never gotten over what Jesus has done for him. Look at where it appears. The, The first part of this chapter about confronting false teachers, this is when this passage breaks off and talks about praising God for his grace. And then here Paul interjects something. In the midst of confrontation, Paul interrupts with an exaltation of what the Lord Jesus has done for him. And so it's a declaration of a man who's never gotten over what Jesus has done. And he even explains what Jesus had done for him in verses 12 through 13. They explain his his affection or cry. When Paul says that Christ strengthened him, He's not talking about the ongoing power of God and sanctification. He's saying that the image of Christ has actually strengthened him in his own conversion, where the power of God gave Paul and uh, the gifts that God gave Paul in his own call to ministry. Now, if you don't know anything about Paul's conversion, this man who later became a Christian and then became this messenger, this God's mouthpiece to the Gentiles, it was somewhat unusual because at once... He was confronted, Paul was confronted by Jesus on a road to kill Christians. He was on his way to evoke havoc on people around him, and in an instant, God stopped him. He confronts him, and there God strengthened him all at once. You could say he regenerated him and he fueled him for a mission that he was going to send him on later, where he would be an apostle to the Gentiles. God would show him there how much he would suffer for God's sake as an apostle. So, our text actually shows that Paul worships Christ for what God had done and provided for him. Now, God has done this for Paul, but you might ask, why did God do this for Paul? Or even Paul might even, wanting to explain to you why he did this for Paul, look at the next phrase. Paul thanks God for the gift and says, because Christ considered Paul trustworthy. Or maybe your translation says, he considered him faithful. Now, Paul wasn't trustworthy on his own because on his own he was sinful. He wasn't trustworthy because he was sinful. But Jesus, in his conversion, considered him as faithful by saving him and putting him into service. And in fact, we could translate this line as, He treated me as trustworthy by putting me into the ministry. And this astonishes Paul because Paul knew he wasn't at his root a good guy. It, it astonishes Paul. Look at verse 13 of the text. Even though I was formally a blasphemer, he put me into faithful service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor or a murderer, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul was shown mercy because he acted ignorantly. And so what did Paul do in response to this? In response to God's abrupt lasting, pivoting work in his life. Paul worships God for his grace, recognizing what he had done with his own life. He counted him as faithful by almost, you could think this in a sports way, actually putting him in the game, taking someone who could not play and then putting them on the field, equipping them for this faithful service. You now, what Paul is saying here is somewhat like what Jesus said on the cross to God the Father. He says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And God holds men accountable for their sins, even if they don't know what they're doing. But Paul needed mercy because he was actually locked into ignorance and unbelief. Paul was living a life, you could say, from a, from a Christian perspective, not having a clue what he was doing. Acting as someone who was going to persecute other Christians around him, ignorant of all the cost of what that was saying, God showed mercy on him, even though he didn't know what he was doing, even though he was not worthy to play in this position. God counted him, drew him to himself, changed his heart, and then put him on the field to play. And so Paul says in verse 14 look there, it says, And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Now I want you to follow the argument here. Verse 14 says that Paul's worship is a response to God's grace. His exaltation of God is because, God's, because of God's initiating and overwhelming work in the life of this man. Grace is all about what God has done for us, not about what we have done for him. And so you can see just the logical argument of Paul writing this letter to Timothy who would go and help administer the right ways of God to this church, he's starting out with saying, rebuke those false teachers because of what they're adding to or subtracting to God's law. God's law is very good. And then in a busting out of praise, actually saying, this is what God's law does in our lives. It shows us who we are, but here's what grace does in our lives. It actually changes us from the inside out. Imagine if everyone in this church, you think of the application of this, imagine if everyone in this church actually thought they were better than everyone else in this church because of who they really are at their root you know, I'm Asher Griffin, I'm awesome, and you're lucky to be in my presence. If 287 members of us all acted like that, what would that church look like? The festering of ungodliness, the festering of pride, the festering of arrogance. And what Paul is saying, look at what God does in every believer's life. Take those who are completely unfaithful, puts them into service, recognizing that they do not belong there, but fueling them to be a gift and a light to other people's lives based on the light that was given to them in the person of Christ Jesus. It's by grace you have been saved. It's by grace you're a member of this church. It's by grace you're actively pursuing others for their own growth and godliness in that church. Didn't it completely change the way you and I might approach someone at coffee in between Sunday school and worship? Not going, oh, how lucky are you to have me? But man, by God's grace, we're here together, and that, that seems like a mystery to me. But by us actually coming together, God's, God's glory will shine through our administering of His loving grace to where we're built up in Christ. The grace of God overflows from Paul with what's called love and faith. So Paul says that Christ, or that God's grace overflowed with love and faith. In other words, before he came to Christ, Paul had no faith and no love. He was a murderer. He was a hateful person, even though he thought he was obeying the law. But because of grace, the love and faith which from Jesus came overflows to Paul, and then it overflows to other people. So the unbeliever becomes the believer, or in this case, the persecutor of the church becomes the lover of the church, or maybe in your own case, in my own case, the one who is naturally selfish who is naturally arrogant, who does not naturally think about anyone from himself, actually is the one who seeks to serve whomever God has placed him around. Can't you see how that, how that helps kind of lay flat the wrinkles that are developing and strangling this church? An understanding of the gospel is the primary focus and the boasting of what this church needed more and more. And all of it came to Paul and to Timothy and to these people by grace. And, and this astonished him. He never got tired of talking about it. He never got tired of hearing about it. He, he wanted his life to not only be focused on the grace of God, he not only wanted everyone else's life to be focused on the grace of God, he wanted this church in particular, and I think for us, clearly our church in particular, to be focused on what? The grace of God that overflows through love and faith. Friends, I wonder if you know with confidence why you're here Sunday after Sunday. Why you wake up and come here And gather here, sing and pray and receive and greet and fellowship Sunday after Sunday. I wonder if you comprehend why on your own throughout the week, maybe you spend time in the Word and in prayer, and when a budget is given to you, you seek to advance the kingdom of God. What fuels that privately and corporately? What fuels your pursuit of God, whether it's at 100% or 30%? What fuels it? Well, friend, if it's anything other than a life that is out of response to God's grace, then you, if it's anything other than responding to God's grace in your life, you need to know that what you are aspiring to is something out of unfulfilling pressure instead of out of the advancement of Christ. Whatever is fueling you, I come here because grandma will pay for lunch. I come here because that's just where I've always gone. I come here because I want to, you know, be a dutiful person. I had a friend that started going to a church in Oklahoma City because he was a young attorney and he knew he could get clients there. If you're pursuing anything other than a life out of the outflow of God's grace, you need to know that whatever you are going towards, it will not fulfill you. It will ultimately crush you and kill you. And so Paul busts out and prays, and it is no sacrifice for him to talk about or think about or worship because of the advancement and the overflow of God's grace in his life. And this, I think, fuels our own church's mission and how we do what we do. When we gather, it is a response to God's grace toward us. So a question that we must introspectively ask ourselves is do the programs, operations, actions that we do, which may, in our own mind, make us us? Do the things that we do, are those things out of a response of God's grace? Hopefully, yes. And if not, why would we do them? Paul never got over the gap between what God owed him as a sinner and what actually God gave him as a result of grace. He never got over that. You read all of his letters again and again. What does he talk about? The grace of God. So Christian, you are in a place now where you have, or, or Christian, are you in a place now where you have gotten over? Gotten beyond the very grace of God. Does it no longer does it no longer satisfy you to hear of the gospel? You know, do you sing the songs that we sing and it's just like, meh. Do you hear a prayer or a prayer and you go, That's just a list of God's grace in our life? Do you do you hear a sermon and it and it bores you because it's just another week of a gospel message fueled by the text of Scripture? Have you forgotten where you were and where you were headed? apart from God's grace? Have you forgotten what it was like to be lost, to be without God, without hope? Do you remember the realization that you came to? If you're here and you're a Christian, you realize that you were born a rebel against your own to aim to justify yourself. If you're here and you're a Christian, you recognize that you were born a rebel where God would rightly judge you in wrath forever in hell but God who is rich in mercy and grace actually reached down opened your eyes to see what you never would have seen never what you never would have seen apart from God's grace do you remember that do you reflect on that is that a regular joy and fuel in your life believing the gospel you received eternal life new life forgiven life do you remember that and what's your response to it Paul's is worship. Is your response work? I mean, to do more things, or is your response rest and the completed work of Christ's death and resurrection? If you're, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, let me just ask you a question and only you can answer it. What's holding you back from engr- embracing that, R- recognizing what a free gift it is? I think that's why Paul not only worships Christ because of Christ's grace, but also I think we can see secondly in this passage that he worships, Christ, because of the very gospel that he believes in. Look at verse 15 of the passage. Look at verse 15 of the passage. It says, It's a trustworthy saying and deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I'm the foremost. Now, I think it literally says here, It says, Trustworthy is the word, or logos. Trustworthy is is the word and full acceptance it deserves. Trustworthy is the word and full acceptance it deserves. Faithful or trustworthy is the logos, it would be in the Greek, is the word. You've heard maybe lectures or Bible studies about the word logos, you know, in the beginning was the word. Logos here isn't a generic word or saying, but is specifically talking about the gospel message being handed down by the apostles, saying that it's trustworthy to receive this and have it. The the similar syntax here, the similar verbiage here is also written about in Titus, which Paul also wrote, Titus chapter one, verse nine, where it says that elders are charged by God to hold fast to the faithful word, meaning that the, the fountain or the fuel of an elder's work in the church is guided by, not history, Not outside sources, not worldly advice, but the Word, where the Bible's truth is the standard. So in our text today, this uses the same force of the word logos here. And what Paul is saying is that the Word is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. Where it states, it says, it proclaims, so he's saying, listen up, this Word receives full acceptance here. In verse 15, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christ came into the world to save sinners. The word is trustworthy when it says the gospel. And that's the gospel or good news. Paul's exaltation and praise was in response to that. The word's announcement of God's action in Christ for sinners. The gospel actually continually and regularly forces Paul into a state of worship. He never tires of hearing that old good news. No song could ever finish too soon for him because he's spending his time in praise. Look at what Paul's words in verse 15 say. He says that the word says that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's the gospel or the good news, the faithful word, the trustworthy statement is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Let me go go a little bit deeper here. Grab your oxygen tanks. Let's dive in. Paul says two things about this word, this saying, which is trustworthy or faithful. He's saying it's first true. It's true, it's trustworthy, it's faithful. But also saying, you better believe it. You better tie yourself to it. It receives full reception in your life. This means, friend, that you must believe this gospel message. It's worthy of all your eggs being placed in a basket. You don't need plan B for salvation, because there's only plan A, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the gospel in clearest form. The words here demand, though, an introspection of understanding of who you are and where you are. If that's the message, and I'm receiving that, how am I then receiving that? That's the banner of the glory of God, and it's, I don't want it to be from afar, I want it to be within, so how do I receive that? And if you're a sinner, this gospel, it says, is for you to know, to ascend, to trust in. Jesus who is the object of our faith, is to be, uh, you could say, it feels uncomfortable to say this word, but to be held, to be be holden of who He is, to be worshiped, to go from inside out, because He came into the world to save sinners. He's to be held on to or or ascribed to. He's to be trusted in. Anyone who's honest knows that the audience of this gospel, where it's said in verse 15 that he came into the world to save sinners. Anyone who's honest with themselves would go, well, that, that sounds like me. Everyone in the room is magnificently placed in a category of people for whom Christ came to say. One of the things that is glorious about all of us is that all of us have nothing in common except the very thing of which the gospel came for, us as sinners in a natural state. We're all sinners by nature the scriptures say we're all sinful by action the scriptures describe and we're all to respond to or receive this gospel news as actually our good news the good news act- out there is actually the good news for me where the world where the word is that Jesus didn't come for the righteous but sinners where his entire work on the earth was to accomplish this to save sinners his entire purpose in being sent, think of it, the Son of God, the Lord, was sent for the very purpose of this to save sinners. There are several stories that come out regularly about people who have endured being captured and being placed in a POW camp. And uh, one one of the most notable stories that came out of World War II where men were taken captive and tortured and used in wicked ways, but there are Several stories on top of this, when those men were overwhelmed, not only by awful oppression, but by God's grace, something happened where someone outside of the camp entered into that enemy's camp, infiltrated the prisons, and freed them from their captivity. In the book Unbroken, uh, World War II story of survival, resilience, and redemption, Louis Zamperini was taken as a prisoner of war by the Japanese, along with many others. And while in captivity, Zamperini goes into long expression in this book, and other POWs were subjected to absolutely brutal treatment and forced labor. And they were subjected to a propaganda campaign by the Japanese warriors who tried to convince them that the war was over and that the United States had abandoned them. But one of the things that happened with all of these camps is that they, they had a final kill signal that would come from the powers on high, where if things started to go south, you could say in the war, uh, a notice would be given out to all these camps where it was time to kill everyone in the camp. And so as a way of torturing these people, they would take them into the woods or into a river or into a lake, and they would tell them that that time has happened, that it is now time for them to be lined up because they're going to be shot, and then they would just torture them again by taking them back and impoverishing them in health and in service. But there was a time, and recorded in this book, where in the middle of the night, they were taken out into a river and asked to stand there in the midst of the water for a day, cleaning themselves off until finally day broke, and they heard something coming from afar. All of a sudden it sounded from the sky and then it started to rumble on the ground and the prisoner or the guards of the prison said, it's coming for you. Until they saw that was once, you know, the rising sun on these planes actually was a circle of blue and a white star in the middle. And no one knew what was going on, but they knew that something was about to end. You can imagine the memory of, or you can imagine the feeling that would rise up in this moment where they didn't really understand because what seemed like for years they had been held captive and tortured and tormented maybe this plane had something was painted on it because they were just trying to jip them and joke with them so in fear they all froze they look up the end was in sight one way or another but then it became clear that those who were coming toward them it wasn't a plane with a red sun but it was a b-29 bomber with a blue circle and a white star in the center and to where they realized that it was actually their liberation that was coming toward them. And in an instant, they knew that they would be rescued. In, in the coming days, it actually would be an invasion of men on their side who would free them from this. And you can imagine for the rest of their lives what it would look like to stand in a puddle of water and to see a plane fly overhead, no longer a place of torture, but a regular reminder of the liberation that they had been given of some who had come for them, My friends, it is the gospel of Christ Jesus when it announces itself as coming to save those who were in bondage of their sin, it was not for the righteous, but for those who were in captivity. It is the gospel that announces that it comes for those who were spiritually being led off in darkness and stood in darkness they stood, but He Himself, who was pure light and true light, actually came in order to take their place where they stood, to take Himself their own darkness where He would suffer the wrath that those sins deserved. He died, the Redeemer did. He died for the sins on a cross to pay a penalty for their their sin. He took the place of these sinners. He was then buried, only to be raised to life on the third day in order to guarantee eternal life for sinners. So when we read passages like this, that it deserves full acceptance to trust this word that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, Friends, that is an invitation of you placing yourself there and to look up at the reminder of the cross who redeemed you from your sins. It was Jesus who sent forth the Spirit to indwell all those sinners who would believe in Him alone for salvation. And so for us, the gospel message is what Paul says in short when he says that you and I are to trust the Word which boasts that Christ came into the world to save, to rescue, to take, to himself, you. Now, what the Bible does is not just place a feast on the table. You think of the gospel, and it's like a glorious, triumphant feast, the most fanciful display of love and grace. It's not just there to taunt you, though. It's not just the most beautiful array of God's grace and glory just to sit there and you stare at it like a kid through a window at a zoo. It is an invitation for you to come to the table and to eat, to come to the table and to drink all that the Lord is. The Bible says that all you have to do to consume this grace and gospel in your life is to turn from your sin and place your trust in Jesus to save you from your sin. There are often stories of kids who grew up in orphanages and later adopted by those in normal homes, where in an orphanage you get just a scoop of something, and then you go to someone's home, and they have like a full plate full of food. And it, all the stories are the same, where a kid looks at a full plate and goes, I don't know what to do. And the invitation of the parent is to eat it, take it, leave the poverty behind, and and be a part of this feast for you. And so by faith, the invitation of the gospel is for you to Trust Christ Jesus to save you, to forgive you, to carry you for a path forward. You call out to God in agreement about your sin, that it's evil and you hate it, and you trust that Jesus is better and more valuable to follow than your own sin. You trust him with your life and to forgive you and to, that he would place everything before you and that you would follow him dutifully asking him to take control of you, that, that his heart would be your heart and your heart would be your heart no longer. Now, for us, hang with this text just a little bit. You have probably an impression in your heart that it's easy for others around you to do just that. It's easy for others to look at this feast and to go for it. It's easy for others to walk into a room, to see a song on the screen and go, yeah, I can sing that. To open up the word and talk about, you know, Jesus came to save sinners and go, I get that. But I I know there are some of you who in your heart go, you don't know me. You don't know what I'm hiding. You don't know what I would never admit out loud. You have the impression in your heart that it's easy for others around you to do this very thing. And maybe even me behind this wood pulpit to tell you how easy it is. But you think, well, you don't know my true darkness, my deep sin, my separation from a holy God. Friend, look at the end of verse 15 the one who tells you the gospel, the one who is overjoyed at its grace, the one who here and elsewhere says to come and drink and eat from the feast of God's glory is the very person who basically says, friends, read this text, trust its word, and trust me. Nobody is more undeserving of the gospel than me. He calls himself the foremost. Another way to put it, he calls himself the chief sinner. So Paul Paul's praise is directed at the one who saved him from his pursuit of ungodliness. And as he directs himself to God, the the fountain of salvation, it's like he takes his arms beside him as an invitation for you and I to go to the same one who gives out this heavenly good news, where this worship is no longer personal, but this worship is corporately We see this again and again in our own instance, how sweet it is for those of you with little children to know that they are watching you read the word, pray to the Lord, sing. The lonely lonely one who's here just hoping to hide, please no one. You wonder why we don't do a greeting time? It's for you, lonely soul. It is so people don't come in. I know you want to hide here, but, but maybe quiet your mouth and listen to the anthem of those who you will reside in heaven with. Or when you pray, and at the end of that prayer, whoever is leading that prayer says, in Jesus' name, amen, it is hundreds of others who say, amen, I believe it. So Paul here worships not only for God's grace, not only for God's gospel, but then finally here in our final two verses, why does Paul worship God? Why is our church to be built up in worship? It's for God's mercy. Why do we worship God? Well, thirdly, it's because of his mercy. Look at verse 16. It says, Yet for this reason I was shown mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Christ Jesus might demonstrate all his patience as an example for those who are going to believe upon him for eternal life. You know what Paul's attitude was? As Paul schemed out what Jesus was up to in saving him, he was so convinced that his sin, which he says is worse than anyone else's, his attitude was that if God can save me, then he can save anybody. In fact, he says that's precisely why God saved him, so that he'd be a living and breathing example of Christ's perfect patience towards sinners, so that others would be encouraged by this, that they'd look at Paul and almost think to themselves, hey, if God's grace is powerful enough to transform that guy, then who am I not to come to the same Water. Paul's convinced in his heart of hearts that that he received mercy from God. God came to him for a great purpose, and that great purpose is to make Jesus known to others. See that in the text? That the purpose that Paul thinks that he was saved by God was so that others might know the one who saved him. That in me, as the foremost, the chief sinner, That in me, Christ Jesus might display or demonstrate His perfect patience as an example to others. Pretty clear what he's saying here. And I think amazingly, he just busts out again in verse 17. He says the gospel in verse 15. He says that he believes he was given the gospel to be an example to others who deny it. Uh, that they would receive the gospel, that they would come to the gospel, and then he transitions transition so abruptly in verse 17, now to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever, amen. And he keeps responding. This is the anthem of his words. This was him worshiping, and he never gets over it. He starts with it, he describes it, and he never gets over it. He never gets beyond the gap of what God could have treated him like, and what God did treat him as, as one who is worthy because of his own work. Near the end of his life, this is when Paul would have written this text, near the end of his life, he wrote to his dear friend, his fellow elder, a pastor at this particular church, and he acts like someone who is newly refreshed in the gift of receiving God's mercy. Friend, here's the deal. Christ came into the world to save sinners, the best deal in the world. And the regular reminder of the gospel, the drumbeat of this man's heart, was the regular private and corporate worship of that very God. At the end of his life, it's like it's the beginning of his life. It's the exaltation of God. And so I think for us, what do we see Paul aiming to do within this church in 1 Timothy? But direct their... Their hearts and heads up to the heavens. And what does God want to do in our own hearts? Us here, 2500 North Van Buren, on a regular basis. What does He want you to do in whatever circumstance that He has you in? Now, unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for the clarity of your scripture to us. We thank you for the passion of your love that was sent for us. And we thank you for the power by which your spirit lifts us in order to understand of your great love, your faithful and trustworthy word that you sent your son to save sinners. May it be on the tip of our tongue from this day more and forevermore. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.